hello everyone. Welcome to the Bard Law Podcast, Season 2. This is a show for lawyers and law students to introduce them to different practice areas and aspects of the legal profession. I'm your host, Sarah Kazmi, and today I'm speaking with Barrister William Wilson on the topic of climate change law. William is the director of Wyside Consultancy in the UK, and he advises companies, governments, regulators, and other clients on environmental, energy, and climate law, public policy, and regulation in the UK as well as internationally. He's also the founder of his project, COP26 and Beyond, which we will also be talking about today. So William, thank you so much for joining today. Happy to have you on. How are you doing? Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. Um, Salam alaikum. And it's a great pleasure to, to join you. Thank you. Yeah, just to give you some context, um, our listeners are mainly lawyers and law students in Pakistan and climate law being a new area for legal practitioners here. I thought it would be good for our listeners to have an understanding of what's being practiced around the world and mainly from your perspective and, and experience um, in this subject. So uh, let's start with your introduction to climate change law and if you can talk about the kind of work that you do in the field. Sure. I'm a barrister and I specialize in environmental and energy law. And I've worked for a number of years in government for the UK government on mainly environmental legislation and regulations. And at that stage, European Union environmental law and regulations. Um, and that's where I really got into it. I think when I had a um, bit of a career break from working in financial services, uh, and I went to Africa for a few months and met with a number of people at United Nations uh, bodies, and one of the people to whom I had an introduction was running the Global Environment Monitoring Service, which was basically getting satellite data from around the world. Uh, and I asked them um, if they could tell me whether in their view, climate change was a surreal phenomenon, whether it was actually happening. Uh, and they said it absolutely was. And the question they, they were trying to work out was how far and how fast it was gonna go. Uh, and that was back in 1991. And obviously a lot has happened since then. But I became convinced that this was a, a big and pressing issue because the people studying the satellite data at the United Nations Environment Programme in Nairobi um, were seeing it on their screens every day. Right. And and when we talk about the, the role of lawyers in the climate change area, the, I mean, the first thing that does come to mind is the issue of environment protection. Um, but of course, the area has now evolved and developed and it's just so much more. Yes, they're advising on environmental issues like air, water, waste and all, but also things like carbon markets and climate finance and like the risks brought by the impact of climate change. So just based on what you've seen and, and your experience, how would you explain of what is included within climate change law? Well, I think it's changing very rapidly because um, although there's a framework of international and national climate change law and climate change regulation, things that are specifically to do with climate change, um, the climate is changing so rapidly that it really is coming to affect everyone's work and everyone's field of practice. So that I, I suppose 
climate change law itself is uh, got a big international law component of treaties and conventions, starting with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, the UNFCCC, and um, its allied Convention on Biological Diversity, because biodiversity is also a, a parallel issue, if you like, with climate change. So there's a lot going on at that level, as you know, with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, for example, in 2015, where countries basically negotiate, haggle, and come together and work out what they are or are not prepared to do about climate mitigation, climate adaptation, and so on. Uh, but, but it really becomes effective with national legislation, uh, and um, or it doesn't become effective with national legislation. So it's what countries decide to do in terms of the national laws that they pass, the national regulations that they pass to give effect to those international obligations. Um, and I mean, for example, it, you, you look first as to which of these treaties and conventions a country is party to, and then what it's actually prepared to do about it. So for example, Pakistan first nationally determined contribution was in 2016. And then there's a Climate Change Act in 2017, and so on and so forth. And so it comes down to the national level. Yeah, you're right. And then, you know, following that, we had the, the framework for implementation of the climate change policy. And then there's, I think, the national biodiversity strategy and, and plan as well. Um, so uh, what examples or experiences can you talk about? Um, uh, on advising on whether it's drafting or just generally advising on legislations and regulations or anything, just, you know, from your experience? Okay, well, at a national legislation level, um, for example, I, I had to go and give evidence to a parliamentary committee on the, the Climate Change Act that we passed in the UK in 2008. Um, and it's it's kind of an interesting model because what it does is that that is the kind of legal framework for setting targets and for saying where we're trying to get to. Um, and at the moment, under that act, we are committed to achieving net zero by a particular date. And then it sets five yearly carbon budgets to say how we're going to get there. And they're getting increasingly demanding and pressing. And it sets up an advisory committee, the Climate Change Committee, which gives its advice on how the government is doing overall and in detail um, in its progress towards those carbon budgets. And that started off relatively easily and it's now getting more pressing as the targets become more demanding. And for example, the committee delivered a quite a critical um, report to parliament about a week or so ago um, saying we've really got to go much further and much faster in a whole number of areas and so on. So that's part of this sort of national framework of legislation. But you're absolutely right. It, it gets everywhere now. And I, I think you can think of examples in agriculture, in real estate, in land use planning, in transport, in building, in finance, energy, and so on. Yeah. Um, and this sort of also reminds me, um, I recently did a, I was part of a team of a climate change risk assessment study. And 
we were advising one of the departments, uh, planning and development department in one of the provinces. So I was sort of surprised when I saw like the wide range of uh, sectors that I had to look at, uh, uh, you know, like, like you said, agriculture, forestry, um, transport, fisheries, uh, you know, migration, urban planning, infrastructure, it was so much and every policy, you know, kind of had to look at it from from that climate change um, perspective. So in a way, it it requires you to, I guess, have a bit of understanding and knowledge of other sectors. Uh, as well, which uh, makes it a little bit tricky, but also very interesting, I would say. I, th I think it does. And I think it requires lawyers really to be open to um, being aware of the, the fundamental science. Um, it, it doesn't mean that, that, that we have to be sort of little amateur scientists, I, I think, but it does mean that just to do our job, uh, I think we have to be aware of the the basic science that's driving all this, so that if you if you don't know about <clears throat> the intergovernmental panel on climate change, um, it you know where it is really coming from, what it is really uh, saying needs to be done, um, then then it's going to be increasingly difficult to advise your clients properly, whether that's energy or transport or government or or commercial operations and things because it won't be clear where, where they're coming from so i things like the ipcc uh, synthesis report that came out this this march um, really summarizes where international scientific consensus is saying that this this huge great problem has got to and and i think it's essential for for lawyers to become aware of that in order to do their job yeah. And what about uh, corporations? Uh, what type of issues related to climate change, you know, do corporations need advising on? Like, what have you seen? Depending on, on what area they're in, um, it's becoming very relevant to the fiduciary duties of directors. Um, there's quite contentious work going on uh, in this area. They're certainly in the UK and in Western countries, they're being challenged as to whether it is actually adequate just to say, my only fiduciary duty is to make as much money as I can for this corporation, the shareholders and things, or do you have responsibilities beyond that? And increasingly in the US, in the UK, in Europe, uh, you do have extra responsibilities as well um, and indeed, you have to a set of reporting obligations to disclose climate impacts on your business and how you're planning to address them um, is becoming more and more internationally accepted as, uh, as an obligation. So you have things like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, um, which are going to affect more and more businesses, starting with the big ones and working down. Um, so it is going to become a, a relevant issue. And then, of course, as you've already said, I think that advising corporates on risk uh, and, you know, that there are many different aspects to, to that, but um, the risk to their operations, the risk to their assets, um, liabilities, insurance, and contract claims against them relating to 
whether it's flooding or hurricanes or other climatic conditions or whose responsibility it is if things go wrong, that there's a, there's a whole raft of areas there which have climate-related um, aspects to them. Right. And another topic that I want to talk to you about is is climate change litigation. Um, that's obviously another aspect, you know, where lawyers come in. Uh, in Pakistan, I feel like, you know, we see more of human rights based climate litigation where, you know, applicants are, you know, involving the government for their actions or or inactions. Um, so if you can talk a bit more about the climate change litigation trends that you're seeing. The climate change litigation is is undoubtedly surging worldwide and it's it's happening all over the place. I think in some ways that it it breaks down into three or four broad categories. There's there's human rights, as you've mentioned. And, and constitutional rights, where people have a constitutional right to a healthy environment or to protection against the effects of climate change. So, for example, and there's a case going on in America at the moment held against the state of Montana, where a group of youth plaintiffs are saying that their rights to a healthy environment are being impacted by government support for fossil fuels and um the effect that that is having on their life and their 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 rights. There's also um, some significant changes going on with um, attribution science is moving on quite rapidly. So the ability to to say that that such and such a climate change event is attributable to specific aspects of human induced uh, climate change is certainly changed quite significantly. So I'll give you one example. There's a, a really interesting case that I, I look forward very much to seeing the outcome of. There's a farmer and mountain guide in Juarez in Peru, who is working with a German environmental lawyer to say one specific company, a German utility, RWE, contributed a measurable amount of climate change from its operations, from its published data. And as a result, it should make a measurable contribution to the risk that he is going to face from glacial lake outburst flooding and damage to his town. It's a really, it's a really striking example of how it may become possible to attribute specific elements of climate change to specific uh, emissions. Of course, it may may not succeed, but it's it's an interesting case nonetheless, and it's being watched quite closely. So this is uh, basically an individual going against a company. Is that what it is? Yes. Or Okay. Yes, with, with support from environmental lawyers in, in Germany, where environmental law is quite sophisticated, but um, it is a very interesting case. Right. So that means that we are seeing not just governments sort of being involved in litigation, but also also companies as well. And I think there was a while ago, the Royal Dutch case, the Shell case, I think I, I'm kind of forgetting uh, the facts, but that was also interesting uh, because company was 
sort of made party to it for their global emissions, I think. Indeed, there was a Dutch case. Um, I think it was um, against the Royal Dutch Shell and and it, it, it required the company to commit to a percentage reduction yes. in their overall emissions. So that was very, very significant. It's hotly disputed by by Shell, of course, but of course, saying that also that they should be responsible for their scope three emissions. That's the actual emissions of people using the products that they produce. Um, and and the environmental NGOs in certainly in the West, I can't speak for Pakistan, I don't know enough about it, but are, are nosing ahead all the time, trying to sort of push back the frontiers of, of this. They, it's very, very well summarized. If you need if you're into litigation, you access to you know resources about it. There's two real resources I would recommend. One is the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University, and the Grantham Institute um, for Climate Change and Environment. And between them, they run uh, uh, excellent resources on both the climate change laws of the world. And also what's going on in terms of climate change litigation all around the world. So they are really fantastic resources. I mean, for example, I looked at them today and I got sort of all sorts of references to what what Pakistan's climate change laws will be. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be useful. I'll I'll plug that in in the description. So uh, for anyone who's listening, um, you know, do check that out. Let's also talk about, I mean, I think you you have covered it a little bit, but uh, just to get into it in a bit more detail, um, what are some of the skills that you think that lawyers that are stepping into this space, particularly in, in climate change law, what should they have, you know, in terms of a skill set? Well, I think they should, all the skills that they've already got in their specific areas will will continue to be relevant because if I'm right, then climate change is going to affect all those areas. So if you're a brilliant pension lawyer or a, a fantastic hotshot sort of energy lawyer or real estate lawyer, um, you know, all that will continue to be to be relevant, but climate change will affect it. And therefore, I don't think you can simply say, I only look at the law and I'm not interested in anything outside the law. I think in this area of all, you have to be aware of the science. So that, uh, you, you know, obviously the more you know about it, the better, but, but certainly you have to be understanding the drivers of the science and those aspects of the international law, which are going to feed through into specific law in your area or specific policies. Um, so that you're able to advise your clients to the best effect. So I think it's just an openness to to the science and awareness of the science in this area particularly, um, because that will be sooner or later, it will be driving the trends of what governments do in terms of national legislation and regulation. Yeah, and, and speaking of trends, uh, I mean, this just sort of reminded me a few months ago, I'd attended this 
uh, conference in Islamabad. It was on sustainability in the textile sector. And you had obviously stakeholders from, from that sector. And there was one particular business, uh, they gave this presentation on what essentially was uh, a supply chain due diligence system that they came up with uh, to evaluate their own compliance, uh, you know, with environmental as well as social standards. So I thought that was interesting because as far as my knowledge is, Pakistan doesn't have any laws that create such obligations for for companies like for example Germany does with their supply chain due diligence act but the fact that there was a conversation happening it may not be because of fear of compliance but there's clearly something that was motivating them or some sort of pressure I guess that they felt that okay let's come up with our own sort of monitoring um, you know mechanism so that's just also a suggestion for the listeners to you know, also pay attention to where the conversation is going, because, you know, that could lead to eventually some sort of, you know, legislation or, or laws on, on that area. Uh, but I think, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You, we have to look at the science as well. We can't just ignore that as lawyers. And I suppose if you're talking about the supply chain, that you're also affected by your customers. And so, I mean, even... Though the UK says, for example, we've left the European Union, um, but nevertheless, if your companies are trading with the European Union, you can't just ignore what their standards are, what their requirements are. Uh, and I guess it's the same for a supply chain from Pakistan. Um, so that, for example, the European Union has passed legislation about um, corporate social responsibility um, which will look not only at environmental aspects, but also at human rights, and labor standards and so on. And that will feed through into the supply chain, whether you like it or not. Um, uh, and so, for example, we are in the UK affected by U EU legislation on chemicals, um, and chemical standards under the REACH chemicals regulation. Uh, and that will affect all companies trading into the EU. So it's possible for it to have extraterritorial effect. If a large part of the world just says, I want the standards to be taking account of this, it will feed back into supply chains. Yeah, I do want to talk about your initiative of COP26 and beyond. If you can tell our listeners, what is it? What do you guys do? Well, this is something that we just started on a voluntary basis. Myself, my two sons, I'm an environmental lawyer. My one son is... Uh, an educator working in, um, in in the field of sort of education policy. He's actually working here in Islamabad in Pakistan. And the other one is working as a fuel cell engineer in Connecticut in the USA. And we started at a time when we were a little bit frustrated that people were sitting back and leaving it all to young people to take the strain on, um, on climate change a website to try and support their action that they were doing with ideas and resources and publications, occasional films and things on the areas that they were trying to address in order simply to support them in what they were doing. It's developed quite significantly since then. And we now have followers in about 150 countries. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I would encourage our listeners to check that out as well can they sign up for it is is it like a yeah there's a there's a free newsletter which will see what we're what we're sort of on about and which articles we're writing what things we're looking at and um we're doing 
quite a bit with Pakistan at the moment. We have an intern in Pakistan and we have some so two two young Pakistanis doing a, a, a small research project um, to, to look at, for example, disaster preparedness. I think one is based in Kaiba Pakhtunkhwa, Sliman okay. Alam, and then there's Maria Samiwala in Karachi. She's going to look at sustainability in cities. And so they're all kind of issues which are relevant to everyone, but they may have particular insights which are extremely interesting for us to pick up on and, and build on and, and work with. Our intern's going to be very busy indeed. We're also trying to make a, a film on biodiversity and climate change to try and explain to young climate activists at the moment uh, why that is a relevant and emerging issue that's also going to be relevant to companies with policies and so on, but it's also relevant to, to uh, the world outside. Right. And, and just to come towards the end, uh, William, what are you looking at particularly? Anything of interest um, for you in this area? What's next for you? What's next for me? I, I'm, I'm looking to try and complete this biodiversity and climate change film. Okay. I'm looking at some trying to engage uh, public bodies and companies more on the biodiversity area. Um, I think it's something that's been neglected a little bit uh, in favor of climate change, which people know more about. And in the run up to the 28th Conference of Parties, COP28, um, this, this November, I think we're looking at um, climate change and impacts on education uh, and quite a number of uh, other areas related to that. Okay, great. Uh, just on a parting note for anyone that's listening that wants to get in touch with you, you know, if you want to share any contact information or any other, um, I mean, you mentioned some of the resources, but anything else that you think our listeners should be checking out? Yeah, let me just, um, I think the science, um, the IPCC, we've mentioned the the, the litigation resources, there's a Sabin Center and the Grantham Institute. If you get into the science more and you want to know about tipping points, the, the, the really endangered sort of, um, the, there's a very good resources at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. If you want to know about where CO2 levels have actually got to, um, there's a, a fantastic um, continuous it's called the Keeling Curve, uh, the observatory at Mauna Loa, the uh, Scripps Oceanographic Institute. Um, we'll try and provide those. There is also really interesting guidance has just come out from the Law Society for England and Wales about how climate change is going to affect solicitors and um, what they should try and take into account, what sort of aspects they should be aware of. It's very much a first shot at trying to pull that together um, but it's well worth having a look at. I'll give you the, the resources for that. Otherwise, we're looking forward to COP28 and, and, um, and, and preparing for that in the many different aspects of, of countries trying to bridge the gap between what they say they will do and uh, what they actually do in practice. Great, great. Um, so thank you so much, William. It was a pleasure talking to you. Great learning for me as well. And uh, be sure to um, add all of these resources, the links that you've mentioned uh, in, in the description. So thanks for joining today. 
Thank you very much indeed. And I hope that anyone who's interested is very welcome to join up to our newsletter and, and see what we're up to. And thank you very much for having me. Great. And, and hope to see you in, in Pakistan as well soon. <laughs> Inshallah. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you to everyone else for tuning in. Uh, please do subscribe to the Bard Law Podcast. If you have any comments or feedback, uh, the email is in the description. And please also share with lawyers and law students in your network. 